This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. I'm Lincoln Smith, and welcome to another edition of Update One. We are joined by Mr. Mark Hamrick, former president of the National Press Club and currently the Washington Bureau Chief of Bankrate. He's also the senior economic analyst. Mark, thank you very much, sir, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lincoln. It's really great. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of items uh, this afternoon to include your career. It's been 25 years. You served as a business editor, anchor, reporter and producer for the Associated Press. Can you expand on your career? Sure. Uh, My dad was a newspaper editor. He also worked for the AP for 11 years. Uh, When I was uh, a young teenager uh, growing up in Kansas, where he was a newspaper editor, he gave me a choice one summer. Uh, He said I could either get a job picking peaches or throwing newspapers. And instead, I started hanging out at the radio station. And, uh, you know, here to this day, we're speaking in front of a microphone. So I had the pleasure of working for AP largely as or mostly as the platoon leader for business news for broadcast uh, for more than two decades. And I've had the pleasure of working for the personal finance website Bankrate.com for nearly the last seven. What's your focus at Bankrate, Mark? First of all, as the name implies, It begins with rates of all kinds, so rates for things like certificates of deposit, for mortgages, auto rates, and we collect those rates all across the country, across all these product categories, and that began uh, before the Internet started. Uh, It just so uh, happens, however, that uh, the Internet uh, provided a much more efficient medium to help people uh, learn about the rates that they may be seeking, whether it's for saving or, or borrowing. Uh, and uh, we have lots of great free content on the site. It's really intended to help people achieve their financial goals. Can you expand a little bit, Mark, on the technique, the survey technique that Bankrate utilizes to compare mortgage rates, interest rates, CD rates? Yeah. Well, in terms of how the sausage is made, that is really uh, the domain of the individuals that do that work, and they're very good at that. Uh, And part of it is sort of electronic, and part of it involves humans. Uh, And key to that is testing the rate uh, data that we get to make sure that it's verified or accurate. the most important thing, I think, for people uh, listening is uh, Bankrate provides free information on all of the, the kinds of rates, whether it's credit cards, auto loans, mortgages, uh, savings, uh, that they might be seeking. And there's really no cost uh, to find out of that information. And along the way, our terrific editorial team uh, reports on uh, all kinds of interesting uh, information that is of interest to people uh, as they go about their daily financial lives. So uh, one of the things that I do, for example, uh, is conduct surveys. Uh, I'm just completing one of economists. We uh, earlier completed one of what we call market mavens or financial markets professionals. 
uh, on that. We were seeking uh, sort of their opinion about the outlook uh, for financial markets. And then we're polling the public on a regular basis. And I, uh, along with my uh, colleague and boss, Greg McBride, uh, work on those surveys. And, and so, for example, uh, they may be on something, for example, to ask people uh, how they're doing with their personal finances, uh, whether they are, for example, living paycheck to paycheck, uh, how they view the outlook for their own, their own personal finances. Uh, so there's all kinds of very useful information on the site. And one of the fun things about my job is I get to work with our friends in the news media, uh, whether it's uh, talking to uh, people who are writing for print or online text uh, on radio stations and uh, radio networks and TV stations and TV networks. And so I'm uh, out and about uh, talking to friends and journalism all the time. So between that and the fact that I was press club president, uh, I was president of the leading association of business and financial journalists called SABU up until earlier this year. That was a two-year term. And then my bank rate job, uh, you know, I'm uh, in high cotton, so to speak, because I get to work with friends and journalism all the time. And, and that's just a tremendous pleasure for me. You started out at a station known as KGGF Radio. Mark, what inspired you to enter the broadcast news business? It's a good question. Uh, well, first of all, it was just uh, I was just being very uh, focused on uh, you know answering my dad's request that I get a job when I was a teenager. But that really did unleash uh, my interest, my deep interest in media. Uh, and so, as you know, Link, at a small station like that, this was a, then a community of 17,000 people on the Kansas-Oklahoma border, a 10,000-watt AM radio station. And those stations, as is the case, they still exist today. You get to do everything in the station. And so even at the ripe uh, young age of 16, um, I would do newscasts. I would uh, be a radio announcer, what we then called playing records, uh, all those things. And then I went to University of Kansas, studied broadcast news, got to continue to work in the profession then as a news anchor, and and then eventually uh, Buffalo, New York for four years, radio and TV there. I did some helicopter traffic reports along the way, I met my wife, and then was hired by the AP in Dallas, and that began my 26 years with AP. As someone who's been in the broadcast news business for just about all his life, what changes have you observed in the business? And have these changes been for the better or not, or mm -hmm. both? Well, it's a mixed bag. Uh, first of all, uh, when I was growing up, and you know, we're now talking about essentially, uh, you know, a coming of age in the 1970s. You still had a fair amount of, I would say, individual or family ownership of media. And in the years since then, it has become more of a corporate game, uh, and that has been sometimes good for shareholders maybe not always so good for uh, either the communities those entities are serving. Think about uh, the, the sort of uh, consolidation and newspaper ownership, uh, as well as radio and TV, uh, where back in the day, you literally had a station or a newspaper owner who lived in the community and wasn't only doing it for the money. And so uh, I think that we have lost something as this became you know, very often a, a shareholder-driven uh, pursuit. Uh, there are some 
plenty of entities that are not uh, publicly traded or essentially, um, you know, where the shareholder focus is is the primary concern. But I, I would say that that uh, consolidation and the change in the ownership structure has been largely a negative, uh, but obviously, as I said, good for shareholders in some cases. The other part, of course, has been the emergence of the Internet, uh, the fact that uh, back in the day, what allowed someone to get into uh, media distribution was ownership of a print printing press or ownership of a broadcast tower. And these days, what is required for distribution is ownership of a cell phone or personal computer. And so uh, in that way, obviously, you know, you can have this megaphone by simply going to the social media sites. Uh, and that has obviously caused tremendous disruption in the industry uh, and, uh, and further consolidation. And as we know, uh, those who uh, perhaps have nefarious intentions uh, can distribute information and misinformation or disinformation. And that's obviously been a huge challenge for the legacy media industry as uh, uh, not only has it faced tremendous competition, but obviously we've seen uh, many newspapers essentially stop publishing. Uh, we see fewer radio stations doing news and, and more people are getting their information uh, over the web or via their uh, mobile devices. And so that's been a tremendous uh, uh, change in the environment over these many years. Mark, with all of these tremendous changes today in 2019 over to Press Freedom, is there less, more, or about the same as far as quantity and quality of press freedom in the United States than in previous decades? I think there are a number of different ways to answer the question, which uh, are not necessarily all arriving at the same destination. And so uh, if you look at, for example, a press freedom index that's compiled by an organization and uh, a nonprofit uh, called uh, Reporters Without Borders, the U.S. Uh, was most recently ranked as 48th on the list of 180 countries, with Norway at the top of the list and Turkmenistan and North Korea at the bottom. And so uh, we're still in the top tier, uh, but uh, we've slipped a few uh, points in the past couple of years. Part of that uh, was reflecting increased uh, peril for uh, physical peril for journalists in the United States, including uh, the horrendous killing of uh, five people at the Annapolis uh, Gazette in 2018. And so they're measuring physical uh, danger as well as things which are a little harder to measure. Uh, and so that was uh, a remarkably bad experience uh, where you had five individuals killed, four of them newspaper staffers and uh, one other staffer in the, in the enterprise there. Uh, we'll see whether that changes uh, in the coming years. I think Though, uh, while press freedom is under attack throughout the world and in the United States, for consumers of information, this is truly, I would say, a golden age in many ways because there are so many different outlets for information. So as I say, it's a mixed blessing that the technology has emerged uh, the way it has. And then it's, of course, then challenging and incumbent on all individuals to try to distill what is good information and what is bad information. Over to the golden age of the media of yesteryear, Mark, and what we have before us today in 2019, take an aggregate total. Which is your preference? Which one will you take? Which era? Well, uh, obviously an interesting rhetorical question, uh, given the fact that it's difficult to put those would-be genies back in the bottle. Um, I think I would take the present simply because of the 
access to information and the potential access to information that people have all around the world. I think the primary challenge from, let's say, a global standpoint is that the same tools that help to enhance distribution of information are also handy tools for authoritarian leaders. And we see, for example, uh, disinformation that is uh, uh, distributed by, uh, as one example, the Chinese during the Hong Kong protests where, uh, among other things, they're sort of blaming the United States and others for those protests when I think it's uh, widely understood that those have been uh, quite organic and coming from the people of Hong Kong themselves. Clearly, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that you do have For example, the newspaper in my hometown basically went away uh, in Coffeyville, Kansas uh, over the years. Uh, The population shrunk by half. As I said, the radio station is still there but doesn't have the news presence that it did back in the day. I'm sure all those people that were involved with that uh, would rather uh, go back to that point in time. But, uh, you know, I don't know that I win any points by uh, harboring nostalgia, and so I'm going to continue to be optimistic that we'll get to a better place using the tools we have. Today in 2019, is freedom of information access in the United States better than in previous years? Perhaps not, or is it about the same? In the United States, it's probably worse, uh, and I think that this has been a uh, a slippery slope that uh, when I was press club president in 2011, uh, had plenty of people noting that uh, it was becoming more difficult also under the Obama administration. And and that certainly has continued under the Trump administration uh, and is very obvious in the sense of, for example, daily briefings stopping at the White House. Uh, You don't have the uh, level of briefings that you used to have at either the Pentagon or the U.S. Department of State. And so those are just very physical or palpable representations of the lack of access. Uh, The good news is, though, in terms of uh, for the citizenry, uh, journalists are continuing to be vigilant and and they'll uh, file freedom of information uh, access cases uh, as needed. Uh, But I uh, I think it's more difficult these days. The irony, of course, is that while the White House daily briefing has stopped, the president himself loves the camera, loves the microphone, and so you'll have on successive days where, you know, he does his stop and chat for 20 or 30 minutes in front of the cameras on the way to the helicopter. That's not quite the same as having the access that you'd have to officials through the official briefings, where also you have the department's points of view represented uh, in very robust fashion, uh, where now it's harder to get that access. Amidst the instant information age of the internet that we have now before us, going over the economy, does economic data provided remain accurate, somewhat accurate, or is it less than accurate? I think this is a good news story, uh, and it's one that through my Cebu presidency, again, the nonprofit association of business and financial uh, journalists uh, that we've been highlighting uh, in any number of different ways through a, a First Amendment committee. The good news is that uh, the government agencies, the statistical agencies, uh, are uh, doing a great job, and uh, that has been unfettered. Uh, by this administration or, I would say, uh, any other. There are some challenges there uh, 
And we're talking, to sort of translate it, we're talking about data that measures the health of the job market, the health of the economy overall through, for example, GDP or growth. Uh, other measures such as uh, home sales, uh, retail sales, and those primarily come from uh, the Labor Department and the uh, Department of Census or the Commerce Department. Uh, there are other, there's other data released by the Energy Department and uh, USDA, the Ag Department. Uh, there are some concerns that there's not sufficient funding uh, for data collection, that they could be doing more. But I think the officials that uh, are uh, running those departments uh, would say, either privately or publicly, that they feel like they're getting the job done. And, and that's very important because for all of us as consumers, as workers, as Americans, we need to have a view uh, on the health of the U.S. economy uh, so that we can make all kinds of decisions. Do we need to be saving more money because we're concerned about something happening in terms of the economic outlook? Uh, and for business leaders, they need uh, access to that information as well. So whether it's investors, savers, uh, just you know, everyday Americans, uh, we need access to this information. And I think, by and large, we do have what we need there. What do you see as the primary differences between the media of today and, for example, the media of the 1960s? Well, uh, there are a lot of differences. Uh, it was an analog era then, meaning uh, you know it was largely for newspapers print. Uh, it was uh, for radio over the air. Uh, couldn't have on-demand uh, content as as we do today through the streaming services that provide uh, podcasts or access to radio uh, content uh, over over uh, mobile devices. And of course, uh, for news, uh, you now have the ability to watch news packages or video clips on social media as well as uh, uh, doing uh, internet searches. So, uh, you know, the game has really changed dramatically in the way that the consumer of news can uh, consume it or, or view it or read it. Uh, and of course, as we mentioned earlier, the way the business uh, works has changed quite a bit over the years with respect to the uh, publicly traded aspect of the fact that m most of the media properties we come in contact with are parts of larger corporate organizations. Uh, and then the way the journalism uh, business is uh, run, uh, that's changed uh, dramatically when you think about uh, the way a newsroom looked and, and felt and I'd even say smelled uh, 50 years ago where it was primarily male-dominated. Uh, there was uh, some uh, egregious behavior in newsrooms, uh, largely having to do with male chauvinism. Uh, most journalists were not as family-focused then as they are now. There was kind of a rough-and-tumble, uh, sometimes heavy-drinking uh, profession. Uh, and I think all that has changed for the better. And thank goodness we now, and in some newsrooms, you'll see more women working than men. But I think there's still work to do with diversity overall in the journalism industry. With all of this said, Mark, what is the one aspect of today's media environment in America that you might change? One aspect. That's a tough one. Uh, if I could just click my fingers uh, today and try to improve the situation overall, I think that there would be more philanthropic funding of journalism enterprises and work. Uh, and that would help to overcome the problem of the lack of profitability of news at the local or regional level where you now have, for example, city governments, in some cases members of Congress, who are basically doing their work 
uncovered by working journalists. And I would say that this is causing a, a fundamental problem for our democracy because the First Amendment isn't able to operate the way that I think was intended or at least would be optimal to the extent that there's sufficient oversight uh, of our elected leaders and also just government in general, not just those who are elected officials, because uh, the business has broken somewhat. And so uh, we are seeing some of that. There's a lot of really tremendous innovation going on with nonprofits in journalism. Uh, they are operating at local levels as well as national levels. But uh, I think that needs to be more robust, and hopefully it will. Uh, some have even talked about public uh, involvement with respect to uh, getting the federal government involved in trying to help uh, generate some of that funding. I don't know whether that necessarily will happen or not. Of course, at, at another level, you can think about the public television and radio models that rely on some uh, government funding but are primarily uh, funded by donations from individuals and uh, and organizations. So I guess that what I'm saying ultimately is is that journalism could use a financial shot in the arm, and that may require uh, other models that aren't only uh, driven by uh, private or public, meaning for-profit ownership. Mark, over to the younger generation, do you posit that they are able to distinguish between fact and non-fact or not in today's media environment? I don't think it's just a problem for the young. I think it's a problem for people of all generations. And okay. part of it is that uh, uh, some people are so-called digital natives. These are people who might be well, whatever, whatever you want to define as the year the Internet began, it's people who came of age during that time and essentially know nothing else uh, other than these sort of uh, digital models. But I find that there are problems I, I see all the time with people of all ages who end up being unwitting uh, participants in helping spread uh, bad information. So, for example, on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. Uh, so I think that's really on everybody, all generations. Uh, and as a society, and, and, and we've heard more about this in other podcasts that we've done here at the Press Club, we need to do a better job with news literacy, helping citizens to understand uh, how to distill fact from fiction. Uh, and as we know, there are plenty of harmful actors in the world these days who are leveraging that ability to spread disinformation. Uh, and it's really a incumbent upon all of us to help stop that to the degree we can. There's also probably more that needs to be done in the sense of regulation of technology companies, and I think that uh, boat has begun sailing first in Europe, and I think we'll see more of that in the United States as well. And obviously we hope that it doesn't harm distribution of uh, truthful information, uh, and I think that uh, that'll be something to watch. Over to the National Press Club, Mark, you indeed were the president of the National Press Club in 2011. And at that time, you hosted the World Press Freedom Day. And this was in the United States for the first time ever. And it was co-sponsored by the United Nations Foundation and the United States Department of State. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was one of the great pleasures of my year being Press Club president. And uh, I had the opportunity to basically show up uh, and host that, uh, where a lot of other people were doing the hard uh, work, including our executive director, Bill McCarran, and my predecessor, uh, Alan Burga, who then worked for Bloomberg News. Uh, but uh, this was one of the most moving experiences of my presidency, Link, because on that particular day, 
Sunday, the Press Club Ballroom, which easily seats 250 or 300 people, was filled sure. with people from all over the world. And um, and many of them were journalists who were uh, working uh, at great risk uh, to their families and their own personal security. Uh, and let me just give you a brief uh, idea about how important uh, that was. Um, after the prize ceremony, I had people come up to me from places like Pakistan, uh, and, I, and I've continued to remain in touch with some of these journalists. And imagine having someone come up to you, Link, and say, I just wanted to introduce myself to you because if something happens to me, I want someone to know who I am. You know, so in other words, so that we could intercede in their behalf. And that's one of the great things that goes on here at the National Press Club and has for many years is advocacy for journalists, not only in the United States, but almost more so around the world uh, through uh, press freedom uh, prizes. And uh, and there was a great deal of advocacy in behalf of Jason Rezaian, who was uh, a Washington Post reporter, uh, thank goodness, was freed from his captivity in Iran a few years ago. Uh, the club was very... Uh, uh, vigilant in continuing to advocate for his freedom, and uh, thank goodness he was freed and is back here in Washington now. Mark, what can individuals do, really American citizens, anybody world, to support and celebrate the First Amendment with respect to freedom of the press? It's a great question, and thanks for asking it, Link. I think there are several things you can do. Uh, one is to try to be uh, a, uh, a try to maintain best practices with respect to uh, sharing information. Try not to share incorrect information. And if you see, for example, something on a social media platform like Facebook, etc., Try to check it out. Maybe do a Google search to see whether it's actually true before you share it or comment. Uh, because, as we said earlier, the, the sharing of bad information or disinformation is really a problem in our world right now. So that's number one. Try to be a smart consumer of information. Secondly, subscribe to a newspaper. Uh, you know, whether you're in a small town, medium-sized community, or in a large one, as we are here in Washington, D.C., a few years ago, I was talking with a member of my extended family who was complaining about the cost of a newspaper subscription. And I said, well, do you think democracy is worth investing in? And as it turned out, he ended up paying for that subscription after we had that conversation. But it's not just a question of uh, supporting the newspaper. It's about supporting uh, the effort that journalists engage in, which is uh, specific investigations of very often governments, uh, the, the vigilance in monitoring the behavior of governments, particularly those here at home. And the way that we can support that is by paying uh, for a newspaper subscription. And uh, I, I realize for some people that may be a heavy lift with respect to their personal finances, so we don't want them to do anything that's going to harm their personal finances. Otherwise, I'm treading on ground that uh, infringes upon what we promote at bankrate.com, which is smart uh, personal financial habits. But for those who can afford it, uh, I, I'm a big fan of subscribing to a local newspaper. Mr. Mark Hamrick, Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst, Bankrate. Thank you, sir, for joining us on this edition of Update One. 
Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Link. Most welcome. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.